Uh, this week, I'm, I'm ad-libbing here. This is really new. Um, I usually don't write off, talk off the script too much, but I just want to share personally, I found myself throughout the week in a little place of personal discouragement and uh, wrestling with my own feelings, um, personal stuff, my own identity, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, navel-gazing kind of stuff. But And then... Things went down in Paris this week, and I, I began to really find myself, and I'm human, and I'm a pastor, but I'm human, and I, I found myself questioning God, you know, I found myself questioning, and in the midst of that, I found something, I stumbled something that I want to share with you, which is, which is really, thank you, brother. You know, when you get in that place, you start to feel sorry for yourself. You start to, you start to wrestle with, with things. And then I read this, and I want to share this with you because it was so profound. It's an article online from uh, America. Um, America is a, a review, a religious review about a man named Dom Christian de Chargé. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. He was a Trappist monk a Trappist monk, Christian, Trappist monk killed by extremists at the monastery of Notre Dame in Algeria in 1996. And when I read this, it put everything into perspective, and I understood. And I'm, I'm going to be meditating on this article all throughout the week. Um, he was a, a monk that was killed by Islamic extremists. The story is told in the film of Gods and Men, if you've watched that, I haven't watched it. Uh, they were at the monastery, and he wrote a goodbye. He wrote a final letter. And this is what he wrote. So this is trans, trans, translated from the French, I guess, French Algeria. And he read, Facing a goodbye. If it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism, which now seems ready to engulf all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, and my family to remember that my life was given, all caps, to God and to this country. I ask them to accept the fact that the one master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I would ask them to pray for me, for how could I be found worthy of such an offering? I ask them to associate this death with so many other equally violent ones which are forgotten through indifference or anonymity. And here, you know, when you're in a place of self-moping or self-pity, it begins to really bring things to perspective and lift it out. He says, my life has no more value than any other. He's not taking himself too importantly, so importantly, but he says, nor does it have any less value. In any case, it has not the innocence of childhood. In other words, children are tremendously valuable, and they are victims as well. I have lived long enough to know that I am an accomplice in the evil, which seems to prevail so terribly in the world, even in the evil which might blindly strike me down. And he was struck down by, by an Islamic extremist. I should like, when the time comes, to have a moment of spiritual clarity which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and of my fellow human beings and at the same time forgive with all of my heart the one who would strike me down. I could not desire such a death. It seems to me important to state this. But I do not see, in fact, how I could rejoice if the people I love were indiscriminately accused of my murder. It would be too high a price to pay for what will perhaps be called the grace of martyrdom, to owe it to an Algerian, whoever he might be, 
especially if he says he is acting in fidelity to what he believes to be Islam. I am aware of the scorn which can be heaped on the Algerians indiscriminately. I am also aware of the caricatures of Islam which a certain Islamism fosters. It is too easy to soothe one's conscience by identifying this religious way with the fundamentalist ideology of its extremists. For me, Algeria and Islam are something different. It is a body and a soul. And I have proclaimed this often enough, I think, in the light of what I have received from it. I so often find there that true strand of the gospel which I learned at my mother's knee, my first, my very first church. His mother's knee was his first church, precisely in Algeria, and already inspired with respect to Muslim believers. Obviously, my death will appear to confirm those who hastily judged me naive or idealistic. Let him tell us now what he thinks of his Christian ideals. But these persons should know that finally my most avid curiosity will be set free. This is what I shall be able to do, God willing. Immerse my gaze in that of the Father to contemplate with him his children of Islam just as he sees them, all shining with the glory of Christ, the fruit of his passion, filled with the gift of the Spirit whose secret joy will always be to establish communion and restore the likeness playing with the differences. For this life lost, totally mine and totally theirs, I thank God who seems to have willed it entirely for the sake of that joy, joy in everything and in spite of everything. It reminds me of that verse, I believe it's in Hebrews, who Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured all things, even the cross. He wraps up and says, In this, thank you, which is said for everything in my life from now on, I certainly include you, friends of yesterday and today, and you, my friends of this place, along with my mother and father, my sisters and brothers and their families. You are the hundredfold granted as was promised. And also you, my last-minute friend, who will not have known what you were doing. The man who will pull the trigger. Yes, I want this thank you and this goodbye to be a God bless for you too, because in God's face, I see yours. May we meet again as happy thieves in paradise. If it please God, the Father of us both, amen, inshallah. Try to be pitiful or feel self-pity after that. Warriors of Christ, being encouraged and strengthened, little flock, be encouraged and empowered today. Our church is going through a lot of different things, growing pains, and this season, it's not just going to be about us gathering together on Sunday and you listening to me talk. I want us to have a lot of fellowship. I think it's great what you guys are doing. I think it's great what you guys are doing. We want to have a lot of opening up of homes and a lot of time spent with one another. Let us encourage one another. Let us encourage one another and fight the good fight. That is the message. And I could sit down and be done. That's the essential message of Hebrews chapter 10 today. And I will talk through Hebrews chapter 10 because all these last few weeks, the author has been talking about Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. And at the end of the book of Hebrews, and yes, he's approaching the end, the last two or three chapters now, and the end message is what? Encourage one another. 
Yes, there are believers that are dying. Yes, there are things that are happening. Church is hard. And the persecution that the Hebrew Christians were going through. But at the end, the summary practical application, the fill in the blank for the author was simply encourage one another. Don't stop meeting together. Stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. Fight the good fight. Run, 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 run. It's in Hebrews that we find the analogy of the race where all of us are running and you're running and I know you're running, you're doing your 15-minute mile and you are heaving and humming. Yeah, and, 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 but you look up in the, in the stands and who do you see? You see all of those who have gone and died before us. And they're in the stands and they're saying, don't you give up. And don't you stop running. And they're running. You, you have, there was an Olympic race where there, there was a, a, a runner and he stumbled and fell. His Achilles, I think, gave out. And he fell to the ground and one man ran out of the stands. I don't remember who this was. Anybody know? You got to Google this. I cry every time I see it. And the man that ran out of the stands, a big, stocky old guy ran up. The security guard stopped, tried to stop him, and it says, I'm his father. And he runs up to him, and he picks him up, and he says, son, I'm going to walk you to the end of the finish line. And, it's the, and the son says, I can't do this. And he says, I'm going to help you. And here's old, stodgy dad with his son, his young boy, limping across the finish line together. Friends, I want you to be encouraged. Little flock, stand encouraged. You have all, all of the saints in front of us, behind us, that are standing, that are chanting your name. They're chanting Woven's name. And they are saying, don't give up. Fight the good fight. You are here for a reason, and you will win. And darn it, we're not going to let you lose because the saints are praying for us. This is the message of Hebrews. This is the message of Hebrews. I don't even know how I'm going to go through this stuff. The better sacrifice is the first heading. Second is a better motivation. And third is a better confidence. Sacrifice, motivation, and confidence. Let's try to get through this. I'm already preaching Hebrews 11 and 12. But um, actually today is the last time we're going to be in Hebrews. It is today's assigned verse. Next Sunday is Christ the King Sunday, and it's going to be a different verse. And then Advent begins. But this is... The same passage that we're reading together with Christians around the world. It's straight out of the calendar. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me. This good priest, Jesus Christ, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Christ offered himself as a sacrifice. When I read that story about the monk, what he's saying is, I don't deserve this gift of martyrdom. I don't deserve the honor to share in Christ, together with Christ, and giving one's life over Christ showed us the way in giving himself. He didn't just bring, hey, I'm here at the temple. I've got the sacrifice. This sacrifice is so good. It's spotless. It's cleaner than any sacrifice. It's better. It's me. He brings himself as the better sacrifice. And I want to address this a little bit. Why do we need 
a sacrifice. A couple of weeks ago, we were having a woven group, and that question came up. In fact, the person who asked the question was me. And as I've been, as I've been wrestling with faith, and, and, and don't worry, I'm not losing my faith or anything, but as, as I've been wrestling with these things bit by bit, you know, I found myself, what's the, what's the point of a sacrifice? Why, why was blood necessary? Why, why is our God so blood-hungry? And this is exactly what society wants to know. Why should we go to a church where they're worshiping a bloodthirsty God that requires the blood of animals and then ultimately His Son? What is the purpose of this? Actually, it seems like the author of Hebrews is asking the same question. When you read Hebrews verses 1 to 11, the author is saying the same exact things, it seems like. He says, sacrifice and offering, God's not interested. In whole burnt offerings, God is not pleased. And then he starts almost dialoguing with Freud, it sounds like. He starts to say, you know, the, the law, it can never make us perfect. Never. All it does is make us more conscious of our sins. It produces neurosis. It's almost like what it sounds like. Very modern. Very modern. And the author of Hebrews seems to be very contemporary. If there was somebody here and on Christmas, that Sunday before Christmas the 20th, I'm hoping we can invite a lot of, a lot of people that are new to the faith because, guys, I'm hungry. I want to preach the gospel to people that haven't heard it before. I want them to hear this stuff. I want them to hear, yes, the Bible is actually quite progressive. You can hear in Leviticus about a bloodthirsty God, and then in Hebrews 10, you hear about a God who's not interested in blood. And they're going to say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. But actually... Let's talk through this because I believe it strikes a human nerve. There's something about sacrifice that I think is not just about a bloodthirsty God. I think it's something that is innately within us. And we are created in His image. After the things happened in Paris, the first question that people wanted to know was what? Who was responsible? Who did this? After September 11th, I remember, I was in downtown New York City two weeks after it happened. I saw the World Trade Center at an angle sticking out. It was like a movie. Large woman weeping and wailing. It was apocalyptic. And at that time, everybody, regardless of religious background or political views, was calling for some kind of retaliation. Everybody was saying, somebody's got to pay, not on our soil. You know what sacrifice is about? It's not about a bloodthirsty God with blood dripping down his fangs that says, more blood, I need more to be satiated. Sacrifice is in response to this fundamental need within us and us created in God's image. That need is justice. Simply that, justice. Sacrifice is in response to the human need for justice. There comes a point where we say somebody's got to pay and we don't know who will pay for this sin. And therefore, the justice must be meted out on some poor animal. Now, that still seems hardly fair. But let me explain this further. What is at the root of what happened in Paris this week? And if I'm going to get theological on you, I'm going to take it all the way to the foundation. I think it's sin. I think it's human fallenness. Even Islam disavows this kind of extremism. This is brokenness. This is woundedness. This is woundedness. This is just basically sin. And the thing about sin is that ever since the first sin 
was introduced to the world, it began to get passed around like a bad family secret. And then it got multiplied to extended families and neighbors and friends. And in that manner, I think it infected the world. It got passed around. I mean it when I say that we can't keep secrets as a church. Families can't keep secrets. Secrets harm any system. But then we say, I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. I'm saved. He's forgiven my sin. He's taken it away. And I've done a lot of reflection on this. What does it mean that Jesus took away our sin? What does it mean? I think we have a misunderstanding that we think sin vaporizes. We have a misunderstanding that we think that Jesus vaporized our sin, zapped it, and it disappeared. I believe this is a fundamental misunderstanding. Sin does not vaporize. For the man who murders five children but comes through prison and says, Jesus, forgave my sin, I'm good, doesn't realize that he's destroyed five families, numerous families, people. The point being, sin doesn't vaporize, it gets redirected. I think the biblical principle of how sin is dealt with, and it's not just biblical, I think, I would, I, I think this is psychological, I think this is family. Sin gets redirected. Let me illustrate. If I've had a bad day at work, I come home, what do I do? Kick the dog. What does a dog do? Pee in my wife's lap. What does my wife do in frustration? Yell at the kids. It gets redirected. I remember reading a story um, about somebody who was a recovering alcoholic. And during his alcoholism, he hated his dog because every time it climbed up in his lap, it was one of those little shivery creatures. And it would wet his lap. But once the guy got sober and actually had been sober for, for a good period of time and, 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 and as a result was changing as a human being, the dog stopped peeing. The, the dog stopped wetting. It's, it's a very real sense where sin, it's a redirection. The impulse is it gets redirected, many times misdirected, misdirected. Raise your hand if you've ever misdirected your frustration out on your children. Now, you don't have to, right? Because I'm the first one raising my hand. Or your loved one, or your lover, or your friend, or your neighbor. Or sin gets indirected, indirection. Hey, are you okay? Yep, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Hey, what do you think about that guy over there? Let's talk about that person. Indirection is when instead of recognizing it, the sin gets, it almost gets, it's stuffed in. So the biblical understanding, I think, of sin is this notion of the sacrifice that it must get directed somewhere. This poor scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, even all the sins that we didn't even know we, get, we committed get placed on the head of this poor scapegoat that gets set free in the wilderness. God knows what happens to that thing. Because I believe in something called transference. How many scapegoats are there out there in the wilderness somewhere that are like just, you know, like just convulsing in their own juices? There's a perfect story. Another, I'll tell you another story about it, about this principle of redirection, the redirection. There were two men. To, to say they both had issues is an understatement. 
they were living in the graveyard. The fact that they were even living together is, is just, I don't even know how they were able to even be, not, you know, be with another human being. They were violent. And whenever people would pass by the graveyard, they'd pick up stones and crush their, head, their skulls in. And these were angry people, resentful. You know what I've learned recently? Anger and resentment is a secondary emotion. It always belies a deeper primary emotion of woundedness, fear, hurt, pain. They've had so much done to them, so much hurt, that all they could do was take that and in acts of anger and ferocity, unleash it out on other people, redirecting, or misdirecting, misdirecting. And one day in their, like two scapegoats almost, that they got dumped on so much in life and boiling in their juices and they're in the graveyard and they're munching on some God knows what bone. And along walks this long-haired hippie dude. And as he walks along the street, they say, let's smash his skull. And they run right up to him and he says, stop. All of that pain, all of that woundedness and all of that hurt go out to that herd of pigs. And this story as told in Matthew chapter 8, the herd of pigs took on all of the woundedness of these two men. All of the pain, the transference now went to the poor animals. And like the scapegoats, they went, I'm guessing like the scapegoats, they went insane. Off the edge of the cliff, insane. An entire herd of pigs. Do you see what we're talking about? And this is the fill in the blank is the doctrine of the atonement and I'm teaching today. The doctrine, this is the Christian doctrine of the atonement. Why does our God require blood? And if somebody here were not a Christian, I could just preach this. It's not that our God requires blood. Friends, we require blood. We want justice. And the problem is we've misdirected it our entire lives. And finally, there was one who was human enough. I'm not even going to say man enough. I'm going to say human enough that said, okay, give it to me. I'll take it, children. Stop fighting. <laughs> give it to me and let it end with me. Let it end. And it ended with him. It ended with him. And that's why in our moments of self-pity or discouragement or woe is me or whatever, we look at the cross. We look at people that walk the way of the cross and we realize, darn it, stop misdirecting. Stop indirecting. And redirect it towards Christ. Those are the fill in the blanks. Send it to Jesus. Whatever that underlying primary hurt, pain, baggages in your prayers you know one of my problems is I can't pray I'm sorry I can't cry I can't cry for some reason I'm a very constipated person but when I pray when I pray it comes out it comes out and I miss that I miss that and in January we're going to start a church-wide campaign we're going to start praying we're going to start praying all of us church-wide and I'm looking forward to the times of meditative prayer, but I'm also looking forward to the times where I can just get it out. I don't know how we're going to do it, where we're going to do it. We're working on that, but I could use a good cry. Send it to Jesus. Let him take it, because he can. Don't take it out on anybody else. Let him take it, and let it end with him, and no more misdirecting. 
No more indirecting. Don't take it out on your friend or your neighbor or your pastor or your leadership team or your wife or your child or your dog or your cat or your husband. Let it end with Christ. The second heading is a better motivation. You know what this does? What Christ's sacrifice has done for us, it's changed everything. It's finally given us a chance to see. When you see acts of love, true love, when a martyr can actually say, I see God's face in you, Mr. Gunman. I see God's face. In God's face, I see your face. When he can say, thank you, I hope we meet side by side as happy thieves. That sets free our souls when we read that. We're held to a higher standard. Our lowly complaints and whinings all of a sudden get put into perspective and we change. Hear the words of Hebrews 10, 15 to 18. The Holy Spirit testifies to us for saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. No longer am I going to say, you should, you should, do, 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 do. I'm going to put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And then he says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, no longer any offering for sin. He's saying, I'm going to put it on your mind. I remember hearing wonderful messages in college. I remember one preacher once saying, this is not a message to hear. This is a message to memorize. What God is saying is, I'm going to cause you to memorize. Not just memorize, but to know it in your heart. You know what I mean? To know it to be true. To know it with every fiber of your being. I'm going to cause you to love my law and to love my law. Because you love my law. How does this connect with sacrifice? If we love God's law, there is no need for sacrifice. Why? Because we're no longer sinning. We're no longer breaking the law. That's one way to deal with sacrifice. Show up at the annual sacrifice. Where's your sacrifice? I didn't sin. You didn't sin in one year. No. How is that possible? Because I'm an ethical creature. Because God's law is in my heart. Now, FYI, you can't go one year without sinning, okay? But I think the message is simply this. God changes our hearts. And the transformation is so real. That you don't need someone to preach at you or to tell you what's wrong. You become a strongly self-motivated person. The gospel does not change behaviors. And for every new person or every non-believer that ever walks into this room, I want, it, I, want, I want them to know the gospel is not trying to change what you do. It's trying to change what you want, what you love, what you desire. It's a gradual change of loves. It's a gradual change of motivations. It transforms motivations. Sometimes we have a fight within ourselves 
We want what God wants, but we also want what we want, what I want. And this is the application, the prayer. Pray to be willing. Pray to be willing. I remember, I remember once hearing one of my professors in seminary say this in front of it. God, help me to desire what I desire. Help me to desire what I desire. That's a good mantra almost this week. Help me to desire what I desire. Help me to be willing to be willing. Does that make sense? Because right now, I don't want to get out of bed. Right now, I don't want to do the right thing. Right now, I want to cut that guy off on the highway and I want to flip him off in the rearview mirror. Right now, I want to do what's selfish. Right now, I want to do what is impulsive. Help me to be willing to be willing at least. That's a great prayer because when you're unwilling, you can say, help me to be willing to be willing. Help me to desire what I desire. I'm going to wrap things up. The third and last heading. A better confidence. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Thus ends this very long theological portion of Hebrews where basically the author of Hebrews is saying, you know this Jesus? You know why you should stay? You know why you should hang on to the faith? Because this Jesus, he's a better preacher. He's a better worship leader. He's a better fellowship. He's a better, ta- he's a better communion. He's a better you know, work, music. He's, he, he's better in every regard. He's a better Sabbath, better temple. In the midst of all of that, finally, he says, so here's the point. The point is, don't give up. The point is, therefore, and third and last setting, the better confidence, therefore, brethren, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by a new and living way, and since we have a great priest, three verbs, the three verbs that I'm going to call out in this, that summarize this entire book of Hebrews at this point. Next week we move on. We won't be in Hebrews. The three verbs, and they're all... The reason I, there's a lot of verbs, but the reason I call these three verbs is because they all begin with the words, let us, let us, let us. It's a certain grammatical form. It's quite intentional. You can map this out. Let us, number one, draw near. Let us draw near. Draw near in confidence with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. In other words, draw near. If I can put this in modern slang, keep coming back. It works if you work it. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Faith and the church, I'm not saying this because I'm, I'm insecure about anybody here. That's not the point. The point is, faith is not for the faint of heart. Faith is not for those who will... Faith is about persistence and resilience Keep coming back. Resilience is important. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. And there's a second part to this. And the second part of it is don't leave five minutes before the miracle happens. Don't leave five minutes before the miracle happens. You know, can I be honest? Can I tell you where these quotes come from? You're like, where does Pastor Wayne get all these great one-liners? Right? I'm going to be honest and tell you where this comes from. I'm, I am not an alcoholic, but I've learned a lot from recovering alcoholics. 
This comes from AA. And for the recovering alcoholic that says, I, I'd, I'd rather not go to a meeting. I'd rather just go on, a, on an all-night bender or see if I can hang out at the bar and not have a drink. But instead, they hear the mantra, keep coming back. Maybe I'll go to a meeting instead. How do they stay sober one day at a time? By continually coming back. That is so similar to the faith, to the Christian faith, the message, you continually come back, you don't give up. And those words, don't give up five minutes before the miracle happens. This recovery stuff, this recovery stuff from sin. How do I get over? It's not working. I guess I'm just going to stop going to church. Don't give up five minutes before the miracle happens. That's what they say. Don't give up. When the author of Hebrews says, draw near and then let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. Don't give up. Don't give up before the miracle happens. That word for hold fast, it has an imagery behind it. Batten something. Secure something down. Tie it down. I've been part of church leadership now. I did the math for almost a quarter of a century. Even as a lowly youth group student, being president of the youth group, whatever, I've seen churches go through tremendous, tremendous storms where the ship is swaying like this. And when you're on the mast and you're going like this and you want to jump ship, in the hopes that maybe it'll be a little bit better, and the ship is going like this, what is the message of Hebrews telling us? Hold fast, that Greek word katecho, which means batten down the hatches, restrain something, keep it bottled down, so that the blessings and the good things that you receive in the time when the, sh the going is sweet will not float away. Because there are times when the storm is strong and the water's washing over the deck and if everything's open, all the good stuff, all the possessions, it's going to float away. And so maybe a Greek sailor at that time would say, katecho, which means I batten down the hatches now, which means we keep the blessings in. You hold on, hold fast. Don't forget the word of faith. And we keep it, not bottled in, but we hold on to it. We treasure it. Don't let the sense of blessing get away. And then finally, we consider how to spur one another. That's the last one. Let us consider how to spur one another on to stimulate each other to love and good deeds. Here it says how to stimulate one another. Another translation says spur one another on. How can you stimulate or spur somebody on this week? How can we stimulate and spur each other on towards love, love and good deeds? Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Would you pray with me? Take this moment to just pray. You can pray out loud if you want. In the Korean church where I grew up, you'd be scared. You, it would, it's a hollering match. Who can holler the loudest? You don't have to holler, but you can speak out loud. Pray. Something spoke to you today. I don't know what it is. If it was nothing, then leave it. Take what you take. Leave the rest behind. But whatever that good word is, pray over it now. Pray over it.
speak it out to God. And as the worship team quietly leads behind us, just have a few minutes to just talk to God. Let's do that now. we pray to you at this time there is so much that can shake faith at this moment we think of those who almost senselessly lost their lives we think of the face of the killers who even took their own lives we think of our brother Aaron who's in our midst and who has lost his father yet another casualty to the big sea but Lord in the midst of it, we're grasping, we're looking for meaning, and we are reminded that there is surprisingly tremendous, even more superseding grace and power than we realized. In the midst of all of this, Lord, humanity cries out to you appropriately this Advent season coming up. Come, Lord, come quickly. You are the answers. You are the answer. We look to you now. We pray, Lord, help us to consider how we might stimulate one another on towards love and good deeds. Help us to hold fast and to draw near and to not give up on our recovery because all of us here are in recovery from sin. Help us not to misdirect or indirect anymore, but help us to redirect our sins properly so that as you take it on, we are becoming more healthy, more whole, more healed and restored to the image of God. I pray now in the mighty name of Jesus, if there's pain and woundedness in this room, that you would take it away. If there is hurt that is causing us to lash out in anger or resentment, that you would remove the deep things within our souls that make us soul sick. So heal our souls. Heal our bodies. 
And even though we age outwardly, inwardly, we are being, being made new day by day. Day by day, we're being made new. And like young babies, fellow thieves at the cross, we come to you now. Empower us this week. Watch over Woven Covenant Church, those who are not with us today. Give us what we need. We pray this in Jesus' name.